0: Hi, I'm Connie Loises.
1: And this is Alex Gove.
0: And this is Strictly VC Download. it's Friday afternoon, August 21st. We are here in the Bay Area and feeling exceedingly thankful for the state's firefighters. They are absolute heroes. Alex, I know you agree with me. I don't know how they do it every year now that there's an actual wildfire season in California. And given that this one is getting a very early start, oof. But moving on to tech news, we are going to zip through a few of the week's big stories before jumping into SPACs, these blank check companies that are formed for the purpose of merging or acquiring other companies and that are taking off like, well, wildfire, if you'll excuse expression. Former hedge fund billionaire Bill Ackerman has one. So does Eventbrite co-founder and investor Kevin Hartz. Even former U.S. speaker Paul Ryan has jumped into the fray with a SPAC. What are these things? How do they work? Should you be thinking about launching one? We'll answer some of these questions today with the help of hearts, who joined us this week with his partner, Troy Steckenrider to talk about the $200 million vehicle that they just took public on Tuesday. Also, keep an eye out for an explainer that we're working on right now over at TechCrunch that answers a lot of these questions, including what has changed structurally that makes SPACs more attractive now than in decades past, why they're priced the way they are, and how much does management make off these things anyway? But first, a look at the latest developments at Palantir. Alex?
1: Palantir, a 17 year old startup that makes data analytics and surveillance software for governments and corporations, sent some financial information to existing investors last night, and the news was not good. Although Palantir's 2019 revenue was $742.5 million, nearly 25% more than the year before, its net loss of $580 million was about the same as for 2018. In addition, the documents revealed that Palantir has not been having a lot of luck expanding its data products into the private sector. Comparing the first six months of 2019 against the first six months of 2020, government revenue increased by 76% versus just 27% growth in its commercial business. To be clear, private sector revenue is more than 50% of Palantir's total revenue, but it hasn't been growing at the rate that Palantir might like us to believe. Finally, Palantir seems to be relying on the same old existing customers to power its growth. For both the government and private sector sides of its business, 91% of the revenue growth came from existing customers. This despite the fact that Palantir is spending close to half a billion dollars on sales and marketing. Palantir, which has raised more than $3 billion in funding and is valued by private market investors at $20 billion, filed an S-1 confidentially with the SEC in early July, and it is rumored to be going public this year. But with these numbers to explain, it's no wonder the company is taking its time.
0: Short-term home rental company Airbnb said earlier this week that it filed confidentially for an IPO. This after seeing a rebound in demand for customers who want to get away but who don't want to stay in hotels, which can be more crowded and involve closed spaces like elevators where germs can linger and all that jazz. The company is still very much on the road to recovery. Its revenue was down 67% from the year before to $335 million in the quarter ended June 30th, according to Bloomberg News. But Airbnb did see its bookings situation improve late in the quarter. While bookings dropped 30% in June, that follows a 70% decline in May, numbers that track with improvements elsewhere in the industry. Interestingly, according to Airbnb, hosts in rural areas of the U.S. have been doing particularly well. They earned over $200 million in June, an increase of more than 25% from the previous June. The filing seems to answer the question of whether or not Airbnb will go with a direct listing, which it was reportedly considering. Direct listings allow companies to pretty much move on to the public market and for their shares to trade freely, but they are not financing events, unlike traditional IPOs. And after raising $2 billion in equity and debt this year to get through COVID-19, Airbnb may need to raise capital. What's really interesting here is what kind of valuation it will be given. It was valued by its private investors at roughly $31 billion before the pandemic struck. Now the economy is in the toilet, but at the same time, the stock market's having a grand time. And I think the latter is more important in terms of enthusiasm over this company. Plus, this is a company that is not capital intensive, unlike its more traditional rivals like Marriott and Hilton. It's also a brand that retail investors know and love. Now, whether the stock markets will continue going as they have is maybe the bigger question, but I think as long as they do, Airbnb could do okay. Stay tuned.
1: According to Reuters, TikTok is planning to challenge President Trump's executive order issued on August 6th that prohibits an unspecified list of transactions with TikTok and its parent company, ByteDance. Observers speculate that the order, which is scheduled to take effect on September 20th, could prevent TikTok from appearing on Apple's App Store or Google's Play Store in the United States or selling advertising to U.S. companies. TikTok also must deal with another executive order issued by the president on August 14th that gives ByteDance 90 days to divest its American assets and any data that the company had gathered from TikTok or Musical.ly in the United States. In his August 6th order, Trump stated that, quote, This data collection threatens to allow the Chinese Communist Party access to Americans' personal and proprietary information, potentially allowing China to track the locations of federal employees and contractors, build dossiers of personal information for blackmail, and conduct corporate espionage. But even though ByteDance has been said to be making progress with potential acquirers like Microsoft, the lack of due process with regard to these executive orders is troubling. In addition to the August 6th order, it would not surprise us at all if ByteDance mounted a vigorous challenge to the August 14th order as well. The legal side of this story seems like it is just beginning.
0: Up next, our conversation with Kevin Hartz, a Silicon Valley operator through and through who has founded two companies that have gone public, including Eventbrite, and who has written early checks to Uber, Pinterest, and Airbnb, among other companies. Hartz now thinks that SPACs, or special purpose acquisition companies, are going to completely upend how startups wind up as publicly traded companies. And he and his management partner in a new SPAC, Troy Steckenrider, walked us through why. But first, a word from our sponsor.
1: Building and scaling remote product teams is challenging. Wiseline is here to offer an alternative to the traditional nearshore offshore experience. Our team of 800 plus designers and engineers bring a data driven, cloud native, and design centric approach to solving your business challenges. Ready to learn more? Contact consulting at wiseline.com today.
0: our conversation with Kevin Hartz and Troy Steckenrider, who we spoke with yesterday morning. We're very thankful to you both, Kevin and Troy, for joining us today. We have so many questions about SPACs, including because we think a lot of our listeners are either thinking about trying to fund some of these things or possibly to start them themselves. When did you start thinking about putting this together and why?
2: Well, Connie, thanks for hosting us. First off, we really started thinking about this for quite a long time. There's this notion of the pendulum in capitalism where things swing far one direction and far the other. So if you look back in the 80s and 90s, I think it was John Doerr that said, six or seven quarters of increasing revenue growth and you should go public. And over the last decade, we've seen things swung the other direction. So the average time of going public was four years from inception which seems ludicrously early, but now we're at this crazy stage of going public in a ludicrous manner so late. The average time now is close to 12 years. And so it's swinging back the other direction. We see it. It's our jobs in technology to not just spot technological trends, but also changes in the climate and these new ways to facilitate our innovation economy to grow. So, for example, venture was just such an innovation, and it started out at this niche backwater in the 70s and 80s, where you were considered throwing away your career if you moved as a New York investor to the peach orchards of Silicon Valley. And now we see that it's really driven the innovation economy. And also, the economics were really misaligned, and the economics were much in favor of the investor. And now, as they've come in line and are very fair to both sides, we've still seen both sides really benefit. In the same manner, SPACs have been this strange backwater of a financial instrument or asset class to get companies into the public market. And it's only recently that we're now seeing the ability for it to reform and the ability for the economics to align, the ability for it to be a very viable way for a company to get into the public markets.
0: So, Kevin, as you mentioned, they have been around for a while, and I don't think they were very well regarded. They didn't perform very well in past years. What's changed?
2: Well, the incentives have been misaligned. Troy, my co-founder of A-Star, the parent company in our first vehicle, One, which is now out in the market with $200 looking for that partner company, can explain more of the technical details, but really there's a why now that you have in venture, why now is live streaming video ready? Why now? It did an Instagram or a Facebook took it take off when it did? And there's a why now for SPACs. And that why now has to do with the closing and improving of the economics. It has to do with Sarbanes Oxley and the difficulty in taking a company public, the traditional route, with a lot of the restraints and being able to really tell a story of a company that needs to be in the public markets. My wife, Julia, uh, took Eventbrite public in September of 2018. It was a great experience to go through the traditional IPO route, but it was fraught with a lot of challenges. It was fraught with these pricing issues that Bill Gurley speaks so highly of and how dilutive it can be to the company. It was really distracting to the management in the sense that they spend a number of quarters, the the whole executive staff, the, the financial teams, our finance teams, and, and this is a much more realistic, a much optimal way to get into the public markets. Instead of an S1, you file an S4, which allows you to give much more details about your business and really paint a much clearer narrative. So there's all these advantages. I'll let Troy talk about a few other points here.
0: I definitely want to get into the mechanics because I don't even know how long it took you to get to the point that you've arrived at right now. But I'm just wondering, did you have a target in mind or do you have multiple targets in mind? I'm just wondering, beyond seeing what your wife went through and realizing there's got to be a better way, why form this SPAC right now?
2: Well, we've just seen the muscles atrophy of companies raising round after round of private money. There's Mm -hmm. been money shoved into these companies. And it's like Boyle's Law, where the gas fills the size of the chamber. So the more money in, the more money that is spent. And that's not necessarily good for business. And also, you don't necessarily have the checks and balances. I found my hardest days of operating a company those days when we had too much money. And we almost, by inherent nature, became less adept at capital allocation. We have constraints, But you really perform much better. This is a thesis I've had for a few decades where I spoke 10 years ago on a panel about getting companies in the public market and had gotten my previous company, a money remittance business called Zoom, XOM, in the public markets in 2013 at a relatively early stage. And that was very helpful to the business is just as Eventbrite being in the public markets has really helped us from a number of directions. So we think companies should move back from that on average 12-year basis to going public sooner.
0: But again, just quickly, do you have a target in mind or multiple targets? Would you be packaging something together?
2: Two points on a target. First is that We don't use the term target. This is one of the things that needs to change. Uh, A target sounds like we're trying to assassinate somebody. We're using the term partner company. We're trying to find the right partner. We're a financing vehicle. We're nothing more than that. We're not here to take over a company. We're not here to replace management. We're here in the Valley. We've growing up in the valley. We have that ethos. We're by founders and we're for founders. So we're really looking to partner with a great company, an enduring company, a company that's not just going to be a flash in the pan over the next 12 months and then dramatically disappoint investors and leave poor investors holding the bag, but a company that's going to be around for decades Microsoft, for example, went public at a $500 million valuation in the 80s. Amazon went public at a $500 million valuation in the 90s. And as you know, are both worth more than a trillion and a half each. So the type of company that we're looking for is really a business that shows real growth and traction, high margin business that has that triple digit growth year over year. And is as small as $50 million in revenues as... We really see you're growing fast. You've hit that inflection point. You have your core product really humming. And we want to get these companies into the public markets sooner. There's been a trend of the mega SPAC over the last 18 months. We've gone from 200 to 400 to 800 to a billion. And even this recent $4 billion SPAC, we're not out big game hunting. We have a $200 million SPAC. And despite the fact that we were many times oversubscribed, In our offering, we're looking for a company that's approximately four to six times the size of our vehicle of 200 million. So that puts us in the billion dollar range, something that is really unique out on the market, especially one that's run by technology founders and operators. So that's an important point. But the second point to that is that we can find a larger business that we can flex up with what's called a pipe. A private investment in a public entity. And that allows us to expand the size of our capital through finding great long-term investors in the public markets. And that, in fact, lowers the cost of capital even lower than an IPO or direct listing.
1: The IPO process is admittedly flawed and it takes companies too long to go public. But one of the benefits of the IPO process is that it allows companies to build support among institutions and also to provide lots of information to potential investors. And that's something that has been criticized about SPACs, that retail investors, for example, don't have the same level of information as institutional investors. Also, I wonder about what institutional support you can bring to your companies after they go public can you comment on that i'll start off with
2: the institutional investors and then let troy talk about the information availability and sharing but first with institutional investors we've had the good fortune of working with the Fidelities and t-row prices and bailey giffords and capital group and capital world all the top names out there and it's our experience that in building a long-term company you get the investors you deserve So if you're a flash in the pan, you're not going to get these great long-term institutional thinkers, but if you have that durability and that great business that we're looking for in our partners, you're going to get those top investors, and we're going to help facilitate that. We have primarily long-only investors in our SPAC, and we can, again, complement that with a pipe where they can then buy in and have what we call lockbox investors, investors that are going to make that investment and throw away the key and just sit on those shares, just as we want to make an investment and not just flip the shares after 12 or 18 months with a tidy profit, but really earn our keep as a long-term partner holding those shares. My big mistake in my career has always been selling too early. So I've learned the hard way that to hold on and to see these companies really come into their full potential is our focus and practice here. And then I'll let Troy Talk a bit about the information sharing and why you actually see the SPAC as a superior vehicle in terms of educating investors on the narrative and story and details of a business.
3: Great. Thanks, Kevin. So this is actually a standard question we get about institutional participation in the SPAC. And as Kevin mentioned, we actually find that it is superior to the traditional IPO process. And that's for a couple of reasons. The first is that because the SPAC acquires a partner through what is technically a merger process, the company is able to give forecasts and guidance. So especially for a high growth technology company, it's very, very helpful to be able to forecast out what its future economics will look like because its historical financials may just be less relevant if you're growing at triple digits every year. Additionally, with COVID, again, that really makes historical financials less relevant than they may have been in the past. And so the ability for management team to give those forecasts and help guide investors really helps management team uh, ensure that it gets a fair valuation that reflects the future potential of the business rather than its historical performance. The other thing we would highlight is that because of the pipe structure, as, as Kevin mentioned, where large institutional investors can participate in a pipe as part of the merger transaction, the institutional investors actually get more access to data, not less. As we talked with a number of long-only institutions who do both anchor investments in IPO, as well as participate in pipes, they mentioned that they really like the pipe structure far more. In a traditional IPO, they have eight to 15 days during the roadshow to really get up to speed on a company and have to decide whether they want to make a sizable investment. That's really hard to do. They go from zero to 100 that quickly. To contrast that, if you look at the pipe, they can be wall-crossed fairly early in the process and actually get access to inside company information. So they'll actually be able to see all the cohort analysis, all the metrics, all the typical things that a growth investor or a private equity investor might have access to. And so what they've told us is they actually get far more confidence in their investment in this pipe structure because they're able to take the time and have the resources to do a truly in-depth diligence on these partner companies before deciding to invest.
2: Troy, you mentioned the term wall cross. Can you explain to the listeners what that means?
3: Sure. So wall crossing is when a public market investor agrees to receive insider information. And in exchange, they agree not to trade in that stock for as long as they have that private information.
1: This is probably another question that you've heard before, but SPAC performance has not been exceptional. In fact, it's underperformed the S&P 500 and the Russell 2000 indexes for three, six, and 12 months after their merger completion. And so I'm wondering, is there anything new that you're doing with the SPAC structure that will ensure that you will generate better performance? Or is it simply the leadership of the team that is providing more confidence to investors?
3: I think it's really the latter. Your statistics are certainly accurate historically, but what I would really point to is that the past three to five years has really seen a shift in the quality of the sponsor teams. And so historically was people who might not be able to raise a traditional fund has really become top tier sponsors whether those are financial firms, whether those are entrepreneurs, whether those are other VC or growth firms, these are people that have demonstrated a far better track record of of performance. And so I think as we consider the performance going forward, I think you'll see that trend change.
2: I would add to Troy's point that the economic incentives of a SPAC have been misaligned towards quality companies. If you consider what happens in de spacking or as the fund or the SPAC merges with the parent company, the nature of the promote or the profit for the SPAC sponsor is really not necessarily predicated on the performance of the company. And this misalignment is just an injustice. And we're actually, again, looking to Amazonify the economics. We want to find a partner company and keep our shares for the long term and see that in the upside not to be able to flip the shares, make a profit, and leave the subsequent investors holding the bag. That's often what happens. So consider the promote, and perhaps Troy can next explain how the promote functions, which is the profit provided to the SPAC sponsor. And that is much akin to a carry in a venture fund, except you make that even if the stock price goes down. So on a $200 million SPAC, there's a $50 million promote that is earned at $10 a share if the transaction consummates at $10 a share, which is always the traditional size of a SPAC. But if that company doesn't perform and, say, drops in half over, say, a year or 18-month period, then the shares are still worth $25 million. And that is, in our mind, egregious. Consider a venture fund that have the value of its investments and was paid out still 50% We know that money should only be earned on finding a mutually beneficial relationship that creates value for the long term, not just in a short period of time and only at the benefit of the inside investors and the sponsor.
1: So just to clarify, have you made a structural change to the promote so that your interests are more aligned and you have a longer term payout? Troy, do you want to discuss that one?
3: Sure. So we actually considered this very strongly as we thought about this and as we were forming our SPAC in the past few months. We ultimately decided to go with a plain vanilla structure. As a first-time SPAC sponsor, we wanted to make sure that the investment community had as easy of a time as possible as understanding our SPAC. That said, we do expect to renegotiate these economics when we go and do the de-SPAC transaction with the partner company. And that's really where we think there's the opportunity to have that alignment of incentives And to make sure that we set up a structure that allows us to do well when they do well.
2: It's actually seemingly contrary to our own best interests. Why would we negotiate ourselves and just broadcast right now that we would cut our economics? But the reality is, is if we can Amazonify the space, meaning bring prices back into a fair value, we can actually in the long term drive out those that are just in here to make a quick buck and also find those quality companies, and attract the quality companies that are really looking for growth. And we benefit in the long term, despite the lower sponsor economics. It's much like the venture industry. Again, we came in with these 3x liquidation preferences and taking large portions of the companies. And now, as the venture industry has come much more in line with the companies, both parties have just seen this phenomenal Medici period of growth in doing so. And it's been a driver of the innovation economy. And we think the SPAC is going to be that vehicle to further drive the innovation economy to really help raise the tide of all boats. And so we think we're just in the first inning of what's really going to happen here. And we're really excited for the future of legitimizing this space and making this a standard vehicle for companies to be in the public market.
1: Have you or will you also make structural changes to require institutional investors like, say, a Fidelity to stay in the fund for longer?
2: The Fidelities and T-Rows first need the charter to buy into a SPAC, and their charters really are looking for companies with fundamental numbers. And since this is a financing vehicle, many of the top firms have not yet entered to invest in a SPAC. Now, we have a lot of long-only funds in our spec that are changing this tune. It's changed from the arbitrage plays from the hedge funds and so on. However, again, in a pipe and just buying indirectly in the open market, the Fidelities and T-Rose and capital groups can do that. And they do so based on quality. They do so based on really understanding the business and seeing that there's a great management team, a large market opportunity, and a great competitive advantage, just as We've invested here. We've had the good fortune of being seed investors in Pinterest, in Airbnb, and companies like Trulia, and we're looking for those long-term holds that we know institutional investors will want to buy into and hold on for the long term.
0: A few other mechanical questions. I'm just wondering, again, for our listeners, how standard things are, like how much of the SPAC is reserved for its management? how long you have to make an investment or to pull a trigger on, not to pull a trigger, I know you don't like that analogy, <laughs> to partner with a company. So my understanding is that it's like typically 15% is saved for operations and it's like a two or three year horizon. Can you tell me what your numbers are?
3: So in general, a SPAC has 24 months to finish its de-SPACing process. And that's through the entire merger, with many SPACs looking to achieve that earlier in the process. Obviously, it creates some interesting incentives towards the end of that deal if you only get paid for doing a deal and, and you're running out of time. So you will see some SPACs get desperate towards the end. So 24 months is average there. In terms of cost to run the SPAC, the rough rule of thumb is 2% of the SPAC value plus $2 million. And so the 2% roughly covers the underwriting fee. And so it's paid to the bankers for that initial cash cost to, to do the underwriting. And then the $2 million covers the operating expenses of the SPAC, both for the initial cost to launch it, so legal preparation, accounting, NYSE or NASDAQ, filing fees, all those kind of fun things, and then also provides the reserves for the ongoing due diligence process.
0: Oh, do the underwriting fees compare with the traditional IPO? I assume they're slightly better.
3: That's right. So the industry standard is 2% upfront, and then 3.5% deferred. What's nice about that is that if you don't complete the DSPAC transaction, the underwriters don't get paid that back half. And so they are very incentivized to help you have a successful SPAC and de transaction because more than 50% of their fees are tied to closing a deal. More broadly, I think what differentiates the SPAC's structure into a a de-SPACing transaction from maybe a traditional IPO is this use of pipes that Kevin talked about. While the SPACs do have maybe a higher cost or, or maybe call it five and a half all in, which is roughly similar to an IPO, maybe a little bit cheaper for a smaller IPO, the pipes come in much cheaper. And so your blended cost of capital between the SPAC and the pipe tends to be lower than an IPO.
0: I know that you're typically giving the long-term investors that are participating shares plus warrants, and it's something like a a quarter of a warrant that they're going to have to package together. Can you explain the benefit of that warrant?
3: The, The way to think about it is almost that there are two separate opportunities to invest. At the SPAC IPO, which for us was earlier this week, investors received shares and warrants. So you're absolutely right. In our case, it was one share and a quarter of a warrant, but that can vary based on the individual SPAC demand and strategy. So that takes you to today. On the back end, when you actually do the de-SPACing transaction, pipe investors can come in and invest at that point, and they probably don't receive warrants, but that's, again, individually negotiated. And so... Effectively, what happens is an investor potentially gets two bites at the apple. They have the ability to invest on the same terms as everybody else upfront, not knowing what company you're going to acquire, or they have the ability to come in later in a pipe when there is a specific target in mind. And then they're looking to write typically a much larger check because they'll be anchoring up pipe investment.
0: Also, can you talk a little bit about that de-spacking process and what the SEC is looking for as part of that? So it's like you find the company that you want to partner with. You do your due diligence, and then you come together, the SEC looks at it, and then there's a a roadshow. Can you walk us through that process a little bit?
3: Yeah. So typically what happens is the SPAC sponsor and any type co-investors will agree to a deal with the partner company. That then gets announced in what's called a Super 8K, and that basically lays out to the public the terms of the deal, includes a management presentation, often will explain why we as a SPAC are excited about this deal and why management is excited about this deal. That's where you can include those forecasts and anything else that's relevant. You then file a proxy, and the investors in the SPAC get to vote on whether or not they want to participate in that deal. Typically, the votes almost uniformly are successful. And then you eventually do the merger between the SPAC and the company, and the company ends up being public, and the cash transfers from the SPAC to the company and often can either go onto the company balance sheet or be used to buy out pre-existing investors. But the company then basically takes over the SPACs listing and now is a public company at the end. From an SEC perspective, many of the same rules apply. You still need to have audited financials. You still need to be on your path to SOX compliance and things like that.
0: And at that point, you exit the company as well. Do you maintain any involvement in the company once the de-SPACing process is finished?
2: Our goal is to stay in the company as long as we can as as shareholders and be long-term capital partners to that company. Whether or not the company wants to include us, our ethos, which is different from many SPACs outside the Valley, is not to rip and replace a management team, but to really support and promote a management team. We are looking to buttress them up. We are having a great deal of trust in the founders that we want to work with that they know how to build their company We're always there to advise or potentially serve as board members, but that's really at their discretion. And other than that, our goal is to hold those shares for the long term.
0: So Kevin, there's obviously a lot of stranded unicorns out there that I could see being helped by these SPACs. You've mentioned before that you think a lot of venture firms are going to be starting to do this in addition to the hedge funds and private equity funds that we've seen already jump into the fray.
2: We're seeing funds jump into this already. We're actually out in the valley speaking with all the funds and just looking to educate the venture funds. We've had a a, a lot of requests in we think we're gonna actually convert to Bill Gurley from the direct listings champion to the SPAC champion very soon. But we've had just a lot of interest from venture funds wanting to learn more. And then there are already those that are ahead of the curve. So Mark Stodd, for example, from Dragoneer, which invests in both public and private tech companies and some of the best on the planet, has just brought us back to the public markets. And just as I think you see this emergence of multi-stage venture funds, you'll see SPACs become a part of this practice. We're independent, and so we don't have a certain alignment. And I think that gives us certain advantages, but we want to welcome more into the space. If you think about it, the hundreds of growth funds out there in the private tech space, they make as many as a dozen investments a year. This is just a one-by-one investment. So there's an incredible amount of space to occupy. And while it's believed that we're at the height of SPACs, in reality, again, we're just in the first innings and we really need to develop this with quality investors rather than what we've seen before. And those are those outsiders trying to talk their way in.
0: And I guess with venture firms, they would just be giving their limited partners maybe first crack at these things? Or how do you imagine that happening?
2: That's a good question. Perhaps they would use their fees to buy into the promote side and they would perhaps have their LPs... Be able to buy into the SPAC and also receive that warrant coverage. So that would likely be a very similar setup to a private venture fund where you have a fund raised from LPs and you would have a carry. In this case, it would be a SPAC raised from their LPs and a promote. I don't know if you can use the same pool of capital because of the structure of a fund, but I guess I'm not as technically stewed on these certain details.
1: Is there any requirement in the SPAC structure for the principals to put in their own money as there is in a VC fund? There's a requirement
2: to put in 3% of the size of the fund. And what you see a lot is that this money is coming from elsewhere. It's coming from funds to back the sponsor. We chose to put in our own money. So on our $200 million SPAC, we put in $6 million of our own personal funds and We did that because we want to have skin in the game and we want to demonstrate to our potential partner companies that we really care about this, that we have put our money where our mouth is.
0: Do you see this as a pushing back on this decade-plus-long trend of companies staying private longer, the private marketplace eating the public marketplace?
2: We do see this as a reversing trend. It's in the making now. We're seeing a big pipeline lining up of IPOs. We're seeing a new generation of founders that want to be out there, that want to emulate how the past worked tremendously well as these companies going public early. And you see, again, Apple, you see Amazon, you see Microsoft at one and a half to $2 trillion valuations and the power of what the public markets can do. We got a taste of that at Eventbrite where we were slammed heavily by covid We were in a situation where we had to raise capital and your typical private growth investors wouldn't have been there for that. And this afforded us that ability to tap into a number of different capital sources that would just not have been available. So there are just so many advantages to being in the public market that's being realized by great founders right now, more of the contrarian founders. But as we move from the early adopters into the mainstream, just as we see technology phenomenon, we'll see the best of companies and the brightest of entrepreneurs and founders taking this direction.
1: The stock market is inexplicably at an all-time high. How do you see SPACs performing in a down market?
2: Well, Our money has been raised, so we have a $200 million public entity in the market. If we do see a large and substantial drop in the market, if we do see the market fall after the elections, this uncertainty closes the IPO window. What I've learned, I had the good fortune of being a seed investor in PayPal. It was the first tech company to go public after the 2000 crash and the 2001-9-11 event was that there is no bad time for a great company to go public. And we provide that vehicle for companies to do so without lining up in this IPO window. We were lucky ourselves with Eventbrite to happen to get out right after Labor Day in 2018. And that window closed literally weeks later.
0: Kevin, I know the money goes into like a trust, but can shareholders trade your shares right now if they want? If they, if somebody was like, I didn't hear about Kevin's SPAC, I want in.
2: That's correct. Those shares are actively trading today they do just represent $200 million in cash. They shouldn't trade above this $10 share price with 2 million units. And and so it stays around $10. The stasis should be around $10. During the de process, if there's anticipation around the quality of the company, and then certainly after when the transaction is consummated, we would see that price movement really then go into action. But the shares are freely trading, we're, we're not promoting it, but I find it interesting that for a great investor like Mark Stott at Dragoneer trades around $10 when this is a chance to buy in effectively into a, a rare and great returning fund for a retail investor. And, and that's a revolutionary concept within itself. And so in a, in a sense, I think that roughly $10 share price his Dragoneer vehicle trades at is actually quite an interesting opportunity
0: this is a, like a $600 million SPAC?
2: This is a $600 million SPAC. And this is from an investor that's in Airbnb, that's invested in Etsy and Uber and all these great companies. And, and now there's that chance for public market investors to be a part of that.
0: Well, guys, thank you so much. I'm sure I could we could easily ask you 30 more questions, but I know you want to get on with your days. Thank you. I think this has been really informative and, and fun to talk to you. And I wish you a lot of success with your SPAC. We'll be watching it closely.
2: Thank you so much. It's really a pleasure.
1: Thanks, everybody. And again, a special shout out to our firefighters who are doing such a great job. And also our hearts go out to everybody in the Bay Area who may have suffered from this.
0: Absolutely. Thank you, everyone. Take care. And we will talk to you again next week.